If you have a Bible today, would you turn to Philippians? We're going to be looking at the whole book of Philippians. Uh, but we'll start in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we are taking our students right now this summer through the book of Philippians. And uh, it's a fantastic little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, which, was in, uh, which is in today modern-day Greece, ancient Ma Macedonia. And a couple weeks ago, we had a fun little game with our students. We, uh, we blindfolded a couple of them, and I had this little bunny, this little stuffed animal bunny, and I had them try to find the bunny in the room that we were in. Uh, and they didn't know this, but everybody was shouting confusing directions to them, and they were trying to find this bunny, and it was kind of crazy. Uh, I love playing that game when students are blindfolded because a lot of times they, um, they cannot, uh, they get so close to the item they're looking for, but they just don't quite touch it. And uh, the reason I uh, did that little game with them was because I shared with them a true story. I don't know how many of you uh, have ever seen dog racing. How many of you have ever seen dog racing? I'm not a big horse racing fan. Um, I know, uh, but uh, there's something called dog racing, greyhound dogs that race uh, for, I guess it's an excuse for people to bet on something, but uh, there used to be, I think, some greyhound racing tracks in Illinois, but now there's only one up in Kenosha. I don't even know if that one's still there. But a few years ago, there was a race down in Florida, and the dogs are too small to, uh, to literally uh, have a jockey. So you say, well, what gets them to go around the track? Well, it's a fake remote-controlled bunny that they put on there. Sometimes it's a bone, but sometimes it's a bunny. They make it look real. They make it even sometimes smell real, and it just kind of moves along the track in front of them really fast, controlled by the guy up in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, in the skybox or whatever. And these dogs just take off, and they chase this bunny. Well, a couple years ago, there's a true story where in Florida, the dogs took off. Everybody was chasing this bunny, this, these dogs, and all of a sudden, the bunny blew up. It just exploded in their face. And uh, according to eyewitnesses, the dogs didn't know what to do. <laughs> a couple dogs it, it tried to maul the, the, uh, the, um, the, the fake bunny. When they realized it wasn't real, they started trying to mess with each other. They started fighting with each other. Uh, one dog literally jumped over the railings and went into the audience. Um, one dog just chased his tail in circles, just like over and over and over again. And uh, not one dog finished that race. And uh, I like to share that story because to me it kind of resembles uh, our life goal of chasing after happiness and whatever it is that we're chasing after. In fact, that, that activity that I did with the students, I had them break up into small groups and say, what are some of the bunnies that you and I and that our society tells us that we should chase and go after because everybody else is doing it, but really end up blowing up in our face? And it was interesting, their responses. I don't know if what your response would be this morning. What is it that you are going after? What is it that you think is going to make you happy? What is going to satisfy you? Uh, a lot of the, one of the students hit it right on the head. One of them said that the love of money, just going after money, uh, status, popularity. Fame is a big thing today in our youth culture with uh, YouTube influencers and TikTok and just being famous, having lots of followers. Uh, but when you get down to it, you get other things like romantic love. You get, um, you know, just family, you know, just that happiness of having our family together. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is going to talk to us about what is the secret of contentment? Is it even possible? Uh, what are we chasing after this morning? Uh, I think we're all on a search. We're on a search for God, whether we're religious or not. 
We're all looking for ultimate answers, meaning, significance. For most of us, if we found out that next year we would make $50,000 more than we made this year, we think the majority of our problems would be over. <laughs> but money is elusive, and many of us have found that out, and you can't really hang on to it, and it actually doesn't solve all your problems. <laughs> um, Plus, even if you do get it and hang on to it, if you find out it's not what you thought it was, some of the richest people are also the least happy in the worst, with the worst family lives. All you have to do is you know, thumb through some of those magazines like People Magazine to discover that. Um, you can't carry it past, past death as well. Some of the richest monarchs of the past tried to. King Tut famously buried with his treasures. Seems kind of silly now. But then his kids did what our kids do when we die. They'll divvy up a few things they want and they'll give the rest to goodwill. There's a sense in which death strips all that from you. I'll never forget uh, the story of a chaplain that was speaking to the Atlanta Braves baseball team a few years ago. He was talking about legacy and how you leave a legacy for your, your children and for your grandchildren. And he was challenging these players to, to leave a legacy that will live on beyond their life. And one of the, one of the, one of the, uh, the players who was a believer in Jesus Christ stood up and said, you know what, I don't care if my great-great-grandchildren know who I am and what I did. I care that my great-grandchildren know my God. I think that put things in perspective. And so this morning I want to ask, what are you going after? What are you chasing after? And I think we're going to look at the answer, I believe, is in the whole book of Philippians. And uh, I'm going to explain that to you in a minute. Um, but I think it's good that we get in touch with the reality that there's, um, there is a growing dissatisfaction. There's a growing concern as we look at the world today. We look at the inflation. We look at the elections. We look at what, everything that's happening. You know, I, I, uh, whenever the weather is not so great, I always look ahead. You know, I don't know if anybody told you this, but it's going to be like 99 on Tuesday. <laughs> I don't know how, they're gonna, how that's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Those of you who don't like heat, just look a little bit farther on. It's going to be 70 next weekend, <laughs> you know, and it changes. And so sometimes that gives me hope when I look to the future. But some of us right now, if we're, when we're looking to the future in our country and we're looking at what's going on, it can be really, it can seem really bleak. It can seem like there's not really a lot to be excited about. One dictionary defines contentment as the state of being mentally or emotionally satisfied with things as they are. Well, I don't know anybody <laughs> who's uh, satisfied with the th way things are, but I think the idea is, is having a sense of peace and, and being content and having this idea that, you know, it, that goes way beyond happiness. Happiness is an emotion. Uh, I was happy this week when the Los Angeles Dodgers beat up on the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> um, Got to get that in there, sorry. Um, but I'm not so happy after watching the Dodgers lose to the Giants the last two days. Always lose in San Francisco, it seems. Uh, but happiness always depends on your circumstances. Contentment is something deeper that's independent of circumstances. And what we're going to look at today is the Apostle Paul is going to say he found that secret. He discovered it. And he didn't just discover it or find it. He learned it. It didn't happen uh, he didn't learn it in a, in, a, in, a, in a church service. He didn't learn it in a textbook. He learned it over the heart, going through the hard knocks of lives, of, of dealing with life. Most people think if I just had enough money, I'd be content. Uh, Rockefeller, who had a net worth of about $100 million, which was quite a bit at that time, was asked, how much wealth does it take to be happy? His answer was simple. 
another million dollars. <laughs> That's human nature. Someone, I heard someone say once that a person with six kids is certainly more content with a person who has six million dollars. Why? Because a person with six million dollars wants more. <laughs> there you go. I just want to see if you guys are still with me. All right. What is contentment? Contentment comes from a Greek word. The Greek word that Paul's going to use in Philippians 4 is autarkis. Autarkis. And he only uses it twice in Scripture, in this passage in, in 1 Timothy 6. And the Greek word in the first century, it meant self-sufficient or independent. And uh, at, back at that time, there was two competing ideas when it came to contentment. Uh, and, and they're still today, the two competing ideas. I'm going to give you a third today that Paul has. But the two most competing ideas to find contentment were, number one, gratify your desires. <laughs> it, you need more. You need more. The next big thing. You just need more. You need to get that next job. You need to get that next degree. Your family, you know, you need to move on up with the house, you know, whether it be, whatever it is, you just need more. And uh, Nero, all the emperors of Rome at this time, they kind of lived that out. They just kept getting more and more and more. And there was people killing each other. Nero, the, the, the emperor at the time of Paul, was known to have had, killed his own mom because of jealousy. He wanted more. He wanted more. He was worried. So gratify your desires. If it feels good, do it. Uh, that's still kind of the, the, the chant of, for a lot of people. But, uh, there, uh, but the, uh, the, the, the disciple of Nero was Seneca. And Seneca was part of that group with Socrates that said, no, it's, it's, it was called Stoicism, being Stoic. And the, the way to be satisfied is to eliminate desire, is to become self-sufficient and independent and so that you don't desire anything. You're actually detached from your emotions. You don't care about anything or anyone. And if you don't care about anything or anyone, nothing will ever bother you. And uh, that, has that has made a comeback in our culture in the last couple years. The whole idea of, of um, just saying, you know, being content. I, I think in today's modern culture, what it's done is stoicism has led to a desire for uh, the Eastern cultures, which Buddhism basically says, it's similar, not the same, but says, you know, the idea is, is you know, the, the whole reason we suffer is because we want. Well, if you just would stop wanting, you know, and just realize that all you have is what you have, then, you know, you'll be content. And so this whole idea of eliminating desire, and sometimes people think the Christian life is like that. It's just about eliminating desires, you know, just becoming like this self-denial, ascetic monk that says, you know, I'm going to deny myself and not want anything. So we've got these two competing things. Gratify your desires if you want to be happy. No, 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 no. No, just eliminate desire. The whole desire thing is just so corrupt, so messed up. Just, you know, just learn how to not care anymore. And that's kind of where Seneca took it. And he literally killed himself because of it. Because he said, you know what, there's, you know, there is suffering in the world and I can't be freed from it. The only way to be freed from it is to literally, is to stop feeling it. And the only way to do that is to die. It's interesting that our culture today, there's an increase in uptick of suicides. I personally believe it's because of this reality that we're living in, where there is no God. The cultural worldview is that there is no God. It's all basically naturalism. And you know, it's either gratify your desires or, or live for yourself. And that's kind of where we're going. So I uh, want to unpack that a little bit more, but uh, let's, let's dive into our text today. Uh, but before we do that, let me read to you what Jesus says about this. 
Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus doesn't just say, oh, don't worry, be happy. He says, no, your heavenly Father wants to meet your needs. He wants to satisfy your desires. Seek first his kingdom. Redirect your desire. Let me read Paul in 1 Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Godliness, which leads to contentment, is great gain. Let's pray. Father, as we dive into this this morning, I ask in Jesus' name that you would lead us by your Spirit. I pray that your Word would speak truth to us. I pray, Father, that we would be in a position to receive it. Lord, we are all desiring contentment. We all chase after happiness. Lord, we are all desiring you and knowing, wanting to know you. God, I ask that you'd help us to get in touch with that desire for you. Not to eliminate it, uh, but I pray that we would redirect our desires towards seeking you. Lord, I thank you, God, that you have made a way for us to know you through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you direct our time and our words. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would just uh, be over this entire um, sermon. I pray that it would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're in Philippians uh, chapter 4, basically the book of Philippians is different than all of Paul's other letters to the churches because he really is, it's more of a thank you letter. It's very personal. And it gives us a window into the heart and mind of Paul. And at the end of the, um, at the, end of the letter in chapter 4, he says in verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, what is true, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Amen? That's a verse that we all know. I think many of us have quoted this. Sometimes some versions say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
And a lot of times it's taken out of context. I know a basketball player that has it written on his shoe, you know, and it was a kind of a big theme for his life. You know, everything I do, I want to do with the power of Christ. Or sometimes it can, it can get twisted. But I want you guys to see the context here. He says, I can do all this. What's the this? What are the things? I can be content in any and every situation. Whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, whether I'm in circumstances that are threatening, whether I'm in need, I can have contentment through Him who gives me strength. So you say, what's the secret of contentment? Well, it's relying on Jesus Christ. It's Christ's sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. But how do I do that? And that's what I want to unpack today. And I'm going to do it in a different way. Instead of expositing this passage uh, intensely, I'm going to walk you through the whole book. That's why I hope you have your Bible. If you're looking on the phone, go get ready to go from one, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. I want you to see how Paul's letter to the Philippians, really he gives the answer of how to have this contentment. Let me give you, uh, there's two key phrases that keep happening over and over again in the book of Philippians. And they're in this passage that I just read. And they're, uh, it's, it's the, the first one is having the mind of or the attitude of. It's a Greek word for neo. It's literally the word that we would say your mental attitude or your mental health. It's not just your mental individual thoughts, but it's your, it's your capacity for the frame of your mind, your attitude. Uh, our reaction to every circumstance we encounter reveals our mental attitude. So this word for now is used about 23 times by Paul in the New Testament. And guess what? 10 of those 23 times is in this book, in the book of Philippians. Over and over again, he says, think about such things. Uh, even when he says um, in here, I rejoice greatly in the, that you renewed your concern for me. That, it's that same word. You were thinking about me. And your thinking about me led you to act and to send me a gift. Uh, it, it's, it's used over and over again. And it, it, he uses it, spiritual maturity is functioning with the mindset of Christ. Remember in Philippians 2, he says, let this mindset be in you, the same attitude that Christ had, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he gave it all up, left his privileges and his, he, he, for a time and came down and humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant and becoming obedient, even obedient to the point of death. And then he says, have that same mindset in you and how you relate to others. So there's this idea here that what he's saying here is that it really, def your, your mindset, it, you know, as a man thinketh, so he is, the proverb says. I, I believe Paul was a cognitive behavioralist, those of you who are into psychology, okay? How we think will determine how we feel. We live in a culture that is driven by feelings, by emotions. How are you feeling today? Do you feel like God is closer to you than he was today? You know, do you feel close to God? I, I often have used this phrase with young people, you know, the, 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 the biggest distance between heaven and hell is 18 inches from your head to your heart. And, I, and I've often, you know, thought, oh, there, you know, because a lot of times we believe things in our head, but we don't let them reach our heart. And I've come full circle on that because really the scriptures and especially the, the Hebrew mindset, and, and, and Paul was a Jew, he was raised in, in, in Jewish and the Hebrew tradition, the heart and the mind are connected. And so when someone says, hey, you know what? Yeah, I, I believe in God, but I just don't feel him. 
What I want to do is, instead of just saying, well, how can I get you to feel him and get a, get a good emotional experience? No, I want to go back to say, what are you really thinking about this God? What do you really believe about this God? And that's what Paul is going to challenge us with here in this book. Contentment starts with how we think, how we think about ourselves and how we think about God. A.W. Tozer said the most important thought a person has is what they think about God. It will determine the course of their life. Most of us are being fed a worldview on a regular, constant, daily basis that there is no God, that all there is is what we see, touch, feel, and hear in our physical existence. And so often we live with a deistic worldview. You know what I mean? Remember uh, Bette Midler's song, God is watching us? Somebody. From a distance, I won't sing. That'll be very scary for you. God is watching us from a distance. It's a famous song, okay? It's a very popular song. God is watching us from a distance. No, that's scripturally not true. The Bible says that, yes, he is transcendent and he is bigger than anything we can imagine, but he's also incredibly close and imminent. He is involved in our lives. And that's the whole gospel. Philippians 2 says, no, this God that we worship has come down to earth and he, and he, and he wants to know us. And he's involved in our daily lives. But if we adopt this deistic mindset, we're going to have the wrong mindset. You know, I, I keep mentioning in Philippians 2, the command there is let this mindset be in you, is in the passive voice. The passive voice designates the subject as receiving the action, not doing the action. Thus, Paul is commanding us to be receiving, to be receptive to God's process, working to create in us a mindset, an attitude, a view of life, which was also in Christ Jesus. I want to think God's thoughts after him. Remember uh, in Romans 12, 2? Uh, Do not be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Whatever frame of mind Jesus had, whatever approach to his earthly life he took, that is what he desires to work in us. So what is your mindset, number one? Number two, there's another phrase that's repeated over and over again in Philippians, and I bet you know what it is. In fact, I love to do this. I'm sorry. I know it's hard to engage you when you're this far away, but somebody tell me what it is. Fourteen times he says, I either do this or we should do this. Who knows the book of Philippians? Rejoice. Rejoice. Take joy. Be glad. Pastor Dell almost quoted this verse when it was my favorite. It was a verse. It was my mom's favorite verse. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. My mom quoted that verse while she was going through cancer and fighting cancer. She, that was her life verse. And, the, and Nehemiah eight ten. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. Over fourteen times. In this book, he says, rejoice, or I rejoiced, or be glad. And so Paul is not against desire. He wants, he knows that the God of this universe wants us to be joyful. Now, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness, again, depends on what's the latest circumstances. Joy is a deep, settled confidence that God is in control. That, you know what, no matter what the weather is, he's got this. And that comes, that doesn't come by just, again, hearing about it. It comes by learning. And that's why he says in, in verse, uh, in, in, he says it twice in 11 and 12, I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content. I know what it is, I know what it is, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. That word learned is to learn by experience. So those are the two words. You say, well, Tony, how did Paul learn contentment? 
Well, let me ask you, what has been the training ground? Uh, by the word, the word gymnasium, it actually comes from the Greek word, which means training ground, where you, where you discipline yourself and you train to become strong. Um, one of my children likes to work out, and she, she, she lifts weights quite a bit, and she, she's very strong for her, for, her, uh, for her capacity. When you work out, you build strength. Well, what's, where do we get strong in the, in, in when it comes to life? Most of us, and I would say this true, I have learned probably the things that I've learned through difficulty, through suffering. And the Apostle Paul, is he qualified to tell us? Well, let me, let me read to you 2 Corinthians 11. And if you have your Bible and you want to turn there real fast, 2 Corinthians 11.23, I'm going to read to you what Paul went through. He, said, he was defending his apostleship in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. If they are, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews, excuse me, the 40 lashes minus one. Just stop and think about that. You know, we all are familiar with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And some of you have seen The Passion, maybe you've seen movies, you know, and we're aware that he went through the 39 lashes where, you know, they, with the, nine of, the cat of nine tails where they whip parts of your flesh out of you. Many people would die before the crucifixion from that. Paul experienced that five times. I don't know how he could have lived through that. In fact, he experienced that when he was planting the church in Philippi. Does anybody know where the, the church in Philippi, when it started? It started in Acts 16. Acts 16. And it, it, it was interesting. It was totally a God thing. You know, sometimes we think, you know, the devil is trying to stop us from going places. But at that point, it says the spirit of Jesus stopped Paul from going to one place and to this other place. And then it says in, in Acts 16 that he had a vision of a man in Macedonia, which is, which is modern-day Greece, okay, near Turkey, which is, was, was where Philippi was located, saying, please come and share the gospel. And so he goes to Macedonia, and there he meets this woman named Lydia who's a, who sells purple cloth. She's like a dye person in, you know, into, into dye, and, and she hears the, she's a God-fearer. She hears the message of the gospel, and she, it, she becomes a Christian. And, uh, and, and then there's this little slave girl that keeps following Paul and Silas around and, uh, in Philippi, and she keeps saying, these are the servants of the Most High God. And, you know, she's, she's speaking, the Bible, the scriptures, the, Luke says in the book of Acts, she was, she was demonic, she was demonically possessed. But she was also a fortune teller. And, uh, you know, those of us who, who are familiar with horoscopes and astrology and, and, and people who tell the fortune, we know most of that is, is hogwash. It's not true. They, they rely on tricks on the mind. But there's also a sense in which when you open yourself up to the demonic, you can do stuff like that. Well, at any rate, finally Paul turns around to the girl and, she, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. And he casts the demon out of this girl. And she stopped being able to tell the fortune of people. Well, the people who were controlling her and working, making money off of this got ticked off. And so what they did was they said, hey, they went to the leaders of the, of the, and the cops and the magistrates and everybody, and they said, hey, these Paul and Silas, these guys are causing trouble. Arrest them. Really, it was all about their money. They had taken away their financial gain. So guess what? They arrest Paul and Silas, and they flog him. They beat him, and they put him in prison. Anybody know the rest of the story? 
What's Paul and Silas doing while they're in pain and in prison? They're, they're singing praises to God. They're worshiping God. And God sends an earthquake and, and literally opens up the, ch- the doors of the prison. The chains break free, break loose. By the way, if you're excited about the book of Acts, we're going to be diving into the book of Acts in two weeks from today. We're going to go back into our, our, our summer series, Unfinished Business. I hope you guys are excited about that. This is in Acts 16, all right? And so all of a sudden, the jailer who's there is scared to his, for his life because he knows the prisoners are going to get free. And he's like, oh my gosh. I, you know, and again, back in those days, you know, there is no other... There is no life beyond this grave, you know, suffering is all there is. So he literally says, I'm going to kill myself. You know, that's, that's kind of where he goes, you know. When there is nothing beyond this grave and all there is is this life and you're going to face suffering, that's how the, the naturalistic secular mind is sometimes tempted to go towards. He says, I'm going to kill myself. And then Paul's like, no, we're here. We're still here. Don't kill yourself. What just happened is an act of God. And, and the Philippian jailer says what? He says, tell me about this. And he, and he hears the gospel and he, and he believes and his whole family believes and his household was baptized. And that's the beginning of the church in Philippi. Okay? So then Paul leaves there and uh, they start sending him gifts. He goes to Thessalonica and they start sending him gifts. Guess what? This letter was written while he's in prison in Rome 12 years later. For 10 years, he doesn't hear from them. And then after 10 years, he gets a gift for them. So that's why he's saying, hey, I rejoice greatly in that last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, this was before cell phones and Facebook, you know, and even the mail system back then. Now, I don't know about you, but when you haven't seen someone for 10 years, do you kind of like feel like, oh, you know, I don't really care about them? That's not Paul. Paul's like, no, I love you guys. How are you? How are you doing? And then two years later, he gets another gift, and that's where he's responding to. So it's just kind of a cool story. This is the church in Philippi. Let me uh, go back to where I was. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger. You might wonder what what Paul was doing for 10 years. This is what he was doing. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in dangers from from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. Some of you leave the city to move on to the country. There's danger there. Okay. In danger at sea, in danger from false believers. Verse 27, 2 Corinthians 11 I'm reading from. I have labored and toiled and often have gone without sleep. I see some of us who have uh, small children here. They can relate to that, okay? I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wow. He's, He's getting beat down and he still has this love and this passion for all these churches. He says, who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? I do not feel weak. He's basically saying, you know what? I struggle too. I have this. I'm going through this. So I share all that with you because Paul is qualified to tell us what it means to be, to be content. All right? So let's, let's, uh, let's dive into this really fast, okay? Um, are you ready? Here we go. What does contentment mean? It means it's an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being right with God and knowing that He's in control of all that happens to us. 
One pastor put it like this, the secret for contentment in every situation is to focus on the Lord as sovereign, as savior, and as the sufficient one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what, how Paul came to learn this, and it's in the book of Philippians, okay? So let's do that right now. I'm going to give you how do you become a person who is actually trusting in Christ in his sufficiency. What does it look like? Number one, knowing the character of God. God is faithful and he is sovereign. Look at Philippians, my, one of my favorite verses. I prayed it last week for our graduates. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you know that verse, but that is such a, a life-giving verse. God is faithful to continue the work. Those of us who have children who have strayed, those of us who have people we have not seen in a long time, uh, Paul hadn't seen, he didn't know what was happening, he didn't have a, a news, news update, he didn't have anything on the internet to show him what was going on in Philippi. He said, you know what, I don't know, but I know this, that God is faithful to continue the work that he started. Philippians 1.6. Then in Philippians 2.13, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What am I saying here? Paul had a, a strong faith in the character of God, that God was faithful to do the work of bringing people through. How many of you know somebody who at one time believed but has now kind of fallen away by the wayside or walked away. Yeah, it's very popular today uh, in our culture today, de deconstructionism and all that kind of stuff. I love this verse because it says God is faithful. If, he, if, if, if somebody is truly born again by the Spirit of God, they are a child of God. God is faithful to continue the work. Then, then look at this. God is sovereign. Philippians 1.12, what does he say? He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So here's, here, Paul is writing Philippians. I don't know if I've said this enough. He's chained to a Roman guard. Okay? He's in prison for preaching the gospel. And he's talking about joy. And then he basically says, You know what? I'm here, but this has all happened because it's advancing the gospel. God is using it. So he had this idea that God was sovereign. He was providential. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. Philippians 1.13. It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard here and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Wow. So what he's saying is, hey, you know what? He says in verse 18, I will continue to rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, body whether by life or by death. Do you know the character of God? You know, character is often something that we don't emphasize in our culture. How many of you, when you were growing up and knew as a teenager, one of those people who were serial daters? You know, you've heard of serial killers? Well, that's, that's kind of gross, but serial daters. So they always had to have somebody that they were dating. <laughs> you know that? Those relationship. How many of you know somebody who jumped into the relationship based on looks and based on feelings and emotions? 
How many of you jumped into a dating relationship based on looks, feelings? Hopefully you didn't jump in a marriage based on looks, feelings, and emotions. <laughs> but you know what? The most important part of a person is their character. Looks and feelings are important, but the foundation is friendship and communication. And the most important quality in a friend is someone you can trust, someone who's reliable, who you can respect, someone who is loyal, who is faithful. These are character qualities that you look for in a person. It's so, they're so important. When a, when, a, when, a, when, a, when a relationship has one or two people that are not committed to character, it implodes. I talk to students a lot about the value of marriage and God's way and, 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 and dreaming someday that they can actually have a healthy marriage. And a lot of kids say, well, what about divorce? And I'm like, well, usually divorce happens because one or two people get selfish and it breaks down and the character breaks down. I share that with you because some of us have jumped into our relationship with God on looks and emotions. You say, Tony, what? Yeah. We were so excited about what, you know, what God could do for us you know, in that moment to, to release us from our pain or give us that job or give, give us that mate or give us whatever we were hurting with that we said, yes, God, I'm in, I'm in. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do all these things. But then as we got into it, we realized, oh, my gosh, you know, there's a lot more to this. And what, the most important thing that God wants to teach us about himself is his character. If you don't know his character, you're, not, you're always going to be questioning. Because well, here's what happens. Your relationship's going to be based on circumstances with God. Well, if God's answering my prayers today, how do you know God loves you? Well, because he's answering my prayer. Well, what happens when he doesn't answer your prayer? What happens when you go through what Paul went through? Really? Your God allows somebody to go through that? Yeah, he allowed his son to go through that. Jesus Christ, the way of suffering. Paul embraced that. Why? Because he knew that God's character, that it was goodness. I, was, I, I, I try to read as much as I can, especially from the secular world, even when I'm preparing from, you know, from, uh, for, for these messages. And I, I wanted to see where, what people were saying. You know, and, and, and one of the things that came out was discontentment comes when there's no goodness, when you question people's goodness. And discontentment comes with God when we question the goodness of God. Remember in the Garden of Eden? Ah, he's, not, he's trying to keep you from eating all, these, all this fruit? You can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, I can eat from all the trees in the garden. He gave me everything, just one not to eat. Oh, when you eat from it, you won't die. When you question the goodness of God, you get discontent. Pop psychology today, one of the big things that they're, they're pushing today to be content is to be grateful. They said the most important thing now is you need to be grateful. If you would just take time and put, put together a thankful journal and, and be thankful regularly. Well, where does that come from? <laughs> it comes from God, really. I mean, that's the, that's the advice of Scripture. And one of the best things we can do to be content is to realize that, hey, I don't, I'm not entitled to all this. It's a gift. But here's the funny thing. In the secular worldview, who am I grateful to? Am I going to compare myself to others? You know, those of you who know me and my family well, we know that we're always having car issues. We have a lot of old cars, and there's always something going on with our cars. And this week we had more car issues, and somebody I was going to meet with I couldn't make as a car. You know, we have a 1999, we have a 2005. Always dealing with cars, cars, you know, uh, car issues. And I know some of you are like, oh, poor thing. Well, you know what? 
If you have a car, if you own a car, that's 90% uh, of people in the world do not own a car. <laughs> I am blessed, okay? I am so blessed that I even have one and I have multiple ones. And there's, there's ways of looking at things, but to be grateful. You know, it's interesting in Romans 1, he says that the whole downturn of humanity started when people refused to give thanks to God. When they refused to give thanks to God and they said, no, I'm going to worship the created thing instead of the creator. And they would not give thanks. It's interesting, though, that pop psychology is saying, hey, no, give thanks. Give thanks. But give thanks to who? That's what I ask. Uh, trust in the providence of God. What is providence? The term providence is only found once in the New American Standard Bible. It's used by Tertullius uh, of the governor Felix. The doctrine of providence is very scriptural, though. The theological term providence means nothing short of the universal sovereign rule of Yahweh. Providence is the preserving and governing of all, his creature, all of His creatures and all of their actions. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at now at least you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity. Paul is, is, is saying, you know what? I, I trusted God's providence. I trusted God's providence that He's taking care of you and that He's going to take care of me. And even though it's been 10 years, even though it's been two years, you know what? He's got this under control. Paul didn't panic and try to manipulate people. There was no turning of the screws to get things from people. He didn't send out prayer letters to the Philippians to get, for asking for support. He was sure that Yahweh in due time would order the circumstances so his needs would be met. He knew that the times and seasons and opportunities of life are controlled by a sovereign God, by Yahweh. Until we learn that, we will never be content. Until we come to the place in, your life, in our lives that we understand that God is sovereign and is ordering everything for His own holy purposes and is working all things after the counsel of His will, you'll always be discontent because you'll, we'll always try to control everything in our lives. We'll be frustrated when we can't. We want to control. Paul is content and it's built on the fact that, it, that if he lacked, it was because God had not given any opportunity. He didn't blame other people. Paul knew that if Yahweh wanted the Philippians to send him a gift, they would. This is not fatalism, but trust in Yahweh's providence. Remember at the end of Philippians 4, what does he say? And my God will meet all your needs to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the first thing is, how do I become, how do I, how do I get contentment? By trusting in Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. Well, how do I do that? Tony, I struggle with faith. Number one, know the character of God. Who is the God that we, that we serve? We, we serve a God that sovereignly works circumstances so that Joseph could be placed in Egypt so that he could save the people of God. We, 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 we know that God is faithful to answer prayer. We know that God is sovereign, that he's providentially. Romans 8.28 says he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what is the good? See, that's the problem with the Philippians 4.13 verse that a lot of people do. They say, well, I can do all things through Christ, so I can do whatever I want. I, I, I want everything. I want everything. It's what I want. It's, it, it, we become very man-centered in, in looking at it. And, and, and that's not what it's saying. It's saying, no, the good is actually the gospel. And that's what I want to move to my second point. For the sake of the gospel. Having the gospel capture your heart and your mission. When you read the book of Philippians, 
one of the words that he repeats over and over again is the gospel. The word gospel means good news. What's the good news? That Jesus Christ came to die and to, for our sin and to rise again. That we were not good enough for God, but he made a way that, that, that we could have a relationship with him. That truth captured Paul's heart and that sent him on, a, on, a, on a, a life journey to share that with everybody he met. Philippians 1, 3 to 5 says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Why? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There was a partnership he had. See, the gospel makes us all family. It, it, it makes us brothers and sisters. When a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they become a new creature. They become a child of God. And now we are all connected. And he said, there was a partnership there. And he says, man, I long for you. I care for you. But that partnership was the gospel. Later on, he says, uh, and I read this already, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what actually has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Verse 27 in chapter 1, he says, what, whatever happens... Whatever happens, you might, you might be going, there was a lot of persecution. By the way, Philippi was a, Roman, was a hotbed of Roman patriotism. patriotism. It was a Roman colony. Uh, there was a lot of status there. A lot of former Roman soldiers retired there. A lot of wealth. It was all about, you know, status, about being great, who you were, you know, uh, being popular, being, being uh, you know, having lots of resources. Uh, if you were not a Roman citizen, you were looking, you were looked down as a second-class citizen, Okay. And so the, the church in Philippi, there was a lot of suffering. Uh, Emperor Nero, around this time when this was written, he, uh, he literally set fire to Rome uh, because he wanted to rebuild it and build a statue for himself because he was so self-inflated. <laughs> um, but then he blamed the fire. Tacitus says, the Roman uh, historian says, that he blamed the fire on a little sect, a little no, unknown sect called Christians. And then what he would do is he would burn them alive at his feasts. So the people in Philippi, to, 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 to receive the gospel, it was like life-threatening. And so he says in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The gospel had caught and captured Paul's heart. So when he went through all these things, he knew that God was sovereign and God was working. The whole, God's whole purpose is to allow the gospel to go forth, to transform us and to bring healing, trans, redeem, redeem this earth, redeem, bring justice, bring peace, love, joy, not temporarily, but from the inside out. And the gospel is the only thing that does that. It changes you from the inside out when you receive it. Paul knew that. And so it allowed him to have contentment in any circumstances because he says, you know what? I'm not living for myself. I'm living for the advancement of the gospel. Has the gospel captured your heart? Number three, and this goes right to the next thing. He embraced the life of Jesus. He embraced the life of Jesus. Living as a Christian, and this is a big theme in the book of Philippians. I hope as a, as a small little uh, application this, this week, you'll, you'll read the book of Philippians. It's only four chapters. It's a wonderful letter. 
If, if anything, I hope I'm giving you a hunger and a thirst for, for Philippians or wetting your appetite for it. Um, living as a Christian means seeing our story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. That's one of the messages in the book of Philippians. His life, Jesus' life is defined, Paul's life is defined by the life and love of Jesus. That's why he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He didn't know he was in the Roman, he didn't know if he was going to be put to death or not. He's like, you know what? If I die, it's better to be with Christ. But if I don't, it's better for you because I'm going to keep serving. He embraced this truth, and this is a tough truth for us to, to, to swallow. Humility is greater than pride. I know it's Pride Month, you know, it's Pride Month, taking pride in certain things, certain people. We all want to take pride in things, don't we? Um, somebody once said there's an I in the middle of pride, you know. Humility is the opposite. It's Jesus. What did Jesus do? And that's Philippians 2. The whole book of Philippians wraps around the poem in Philippians 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't hold on to his status. He didn't hold on to it all. He came down and he humbled himself. And he became obedient to death. Participating in the story of Jesus involves suffering in order to love others more than himself. That's why he says in Philippians 2, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And then he says this, and this is so radical. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You know what the character quality we need to look for and we need to develop in our lives is? Selflessness. I've been speaking in schools on character with character-based education for years. In the last year or two, I have gotten so much pushback on this word. Because we, we, what we do is we ask students to list character qualities they want in a friend. What, ba, 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 ba. And if somebody says selfless, we give them chocolate. <laughs> you know, it's like the magic word. But I'm getting pushback. Do you know why? Because today we live in a narcissistic culture that has lifted up self so high that the worst thing you could be is selfless. And they interpret selfless as being, oh, you're not caring for yourself. And the most important thing you need to do is to care for yourself. You know? Now, those of us who've grown up in you know, dysfunctional homes, we know that there is something that's called codependency, where you, know, you become codependent and I, you, you, know, you need people to appease you and you need to please people. And that's not healthiness. And some people become selfless because they need other people. That's not healthy. But selflessness is humility. It's being saying, you know what? It's not about me. It's about you. And I'm actually going to put you first. It's healthy. It's what Jesus did. It's what God calls us to do. And I share that with you because if you're going to embrace the life of Christ, that's the life of Christ. It's selflessness. It's serving others. Sorry, I can't look at you guys over there. It, it, it rotates. He gives an example of this. I love this verse. Philippians 2, 20 and 21. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, 
that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What a powerful statement. Timothy is this person that actually cares for other people and puts, when you, when you put Christ first, you tend to put other people first in a healthy way. Be concerned for the well-being of others. If you live only for yourself, you will never be content. Contentment begins to be a reality when you have more concern about how it is with others than how it is with you. Most of us never experience contentment because we demand our world to be exactly the way we would like it to be. That's our curse. We want to force everything into a mold that we have made. We want our partner in life, our husband or wife, to be exactly the way we expect them to be in order to fulfill our expectation, our design, our agenda. We would like our children to absolutely conform to this pre-written plan that we have ordained for them to fulfill. We'd like everything in our world to fall into its perfect niche. You'll never know contentment until you get away from the idea of designing your own agenda and lose yourself in a preoccupation with the well-being of others. What gives me the strength to do that when, I, when, when I'm being fed and connected to Christ? I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me, not in my own strength. All right, how do I get contentment? How do I become Christ-sufficient? How do I trust in Christ? Know the character of God, that He is sovereign, that He is faithful. Number two, um, have the gospel capture your heart and your mission. Number three, embrace the life of Jesus. Humility is greater than pride. Number four, yeah, there's six of them. I know, it's not a three, three you're wondering how far we're going to go today. Yeah, there's six. Knowing Christ personally is greater than everything. Knowing Christ personally. You say, how did Paul learn that? Philippians 3. Philippians 3. Want to talk about status? Back in those days, he had it all. In his Jewish culture, he had earned the highest status. He was a, a zealot, he was a Pharisee, he had earned all these things, he had all these privileges. In his culture, in his world, he had it all as this religious person that he was. And he says in Philippians 3, I count it all dung. There's another four-letter word I could use, but he, he used a very strong word. Uh, cow poo manure, okay? Uh, all of these things, he says, I count as loss. It's all garbage to, the, to knowing Christ. Paul's passion was knowing Jesus Christ. He says it was worth everything to him. He gave up all his status and privilege. He says, I, he says in verse 8 of Philippians 3, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith. Then he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining resurrection from the dead. Does Paul sound like a guy who's eliminated desire from his life? No way. He's redirected it and he says, you know what? My passion is knowing Jesus. I have to be honest with you. A lot of times my passion is serving him Sometimes my passion is often getting things from him. <laughs> my passion is receiving blessings from him. And that's good. But our primary passion should be knowing him. 
You guys have heard me say this before. You're not going to obey or commit to somebody you don't love. You really shouldn't love somebody you don't trust. You're not going to trust somebody you don't know. And you shouldn't know somebody. Well, you're not going to get to know somebody unless you spend time with them. Let me say that again. You're not going to commit and obey somebody and listen to them unless you know that they love you and you love them. We do what we love. You know, I think it was Woody Allen who said, the heart wants what it wants. That's why Jesus said the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Paul loved Jesus. He wanted to know him. You're not going to commit to somebody you don't love. You're not going to love somebody you don't trust. At least you shouldn't. You're not going to trust somebody you don't know. And you can't know somebody unless you spend time with them. Paul spent time with Jesus. In Philippians 4, what does he say? In everything, whatever you're going through, he says, rejoice, the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Then he says, in everything, cast your anxieties upon the Lord. Pray about everything. And when you pray, his peace will guard your heart and mind. The Lord is near. His peace and joy are tangible through prayer. How do we get to know Jesus through prayer? How do I get to know you? Through talking to you and listening to you, spending time with you. Let me read you a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. I had somebody emailed me this week and they said that they're reading Mere Christianity. I was like, I was so encouraged by that. What a fantastic book. It's a difficult read for some of us. A lot of the Shakespearean language or the or a late 19th, early, early, early 20th century language is there. This is what he says. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. It's funny that he mentions men there, you know? Interesting there. If I find myself in a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is, is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main objective of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Sounds like uh, Hebrews 11, doesn't it? Abraham was looking for a country that was not his own. Paul's desire was to know Christ. And this leads me to the next thing. Contentment in Christ does not eradicate or cease desire. It redirects it. It redirects it. I think I've said enough on that. I'm not going to go there uh, too, too far with you guys on that one. The point is, is that we, 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 our identity is in Christ. Heavenly citizenship, not earthly circumstances. One more passage I'll read from Philippians. But our citizenship, verse, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control 
will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What gave Paul contentment? Recognizing that this is not all there is. That this is just a training ground. That there is a heaven. That, and he said, you say, well, how do you know that? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is going to transform our glorious bodies. There is something to look forward to. Hope is not just a wish. I hope this happens. I hope the Dodgers win the World Series this year. That's just a wish. <laughs> on something menial. Hope is, uh, biblical hope is based on a confidence on what God has promised. And so what Paul is saying, you know what? My identity is not in circumstances. It's not in status. It's not on how much I have here on earth. It's in heaven. My, my citizenship is in heaven. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do anything. In fact, it means we do more. You ever heard that phrase, be heavenly minded? He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good? No, the, the truth of the matter is, is when you focus on heaven, the goal of heaven, the goal of Christ is, is to bring his heaven to earth. When Jesus was on earth, he said, look, the kingdom of heaven is near. The, Christ came to bring heaven to earth. He's going to transform our bodies. So what gave Paul this, this ability to, 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 to persevere, to have joy, to rejoice, yeah, he knew the character of God. The gospel captured him. He embraced the life of Jesus. He, he, uh, he embraced humility. He wanted to know Christ personally. It was better than anything. His contentment in Christ did not eradicate or cease. It redirected it. And finally, his identity in Christ is in Christ. His identity is in Christ, not in earthly circumstances. Where is your identity this morning? Let me read one more C.S. Lewis quote. It's worth it. The weight of glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of rewards and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted half creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud, pli mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think Paul and C.S. Lewis have something in common here. They're saying, you know what? There is something so much greater that is out there for us. And the reason why we have desires that can't be satisfied on this earth is because he's created eternity in our hearts. He's put eternity in our hearts. And, and there's something that only God can satisfy us with completely. As we wrap this up this morning, I want to ask you where you are at in this contentment spectrum. Are you on this going for the gratify right now? Is it all about gratifying, gratifying, gratifying the desires? Or are you afraid to desire? Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been burned. And you've given your heart to something that's been broken. And so you're more leaning towards the stoic way of saying, oh, you know what? I just, I'm afraid of my desires. I don't want to get... And that's not, that's not Scripture. Jesus wants us to redirect our desire for him. He wants to satisfy our desires. Paul says, I have, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
I'm reminded of that uh, passage where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you connected to Christ? Has the gospel captured your heart? Have you ever received Christ and allowed him to change you from the inside out? What's your froneo this morning? What's your mental health? What's the mindset that you're approaching life with? Do you have the mind of Christ? Contentment is found when you find your strength in the Lord. Contentment is never found in the sheer force of the will. The moment you repent and allow God to be your strength, His word will be in front of you. His spirit will be inside you. Your meaning and purpose and joy is found in Christ alone. God is in control. He's faithful. He's sovereign. Your circumstances do not define you. Your dependence on the strength of the Lord is what's going to define you. What's keeping you from trusting him today? No matter what you're going through. The gospel keeps us grounded. You're not your job. You're not your education. You're not your family. You are a child of God. (laughs) In Christ alone. There's a rapper named Lecrae. He wrote a song, one of my favorites, a few years ago called Identity. He said this, I'm not the shoes I wear. I'm not the clothes I buy. I'm not the house I live in. I'm not the car I drive. No, I'm not the job I work. You can't define my worth but by nothing on God's green earth. My identity is found in Christ. Is found in Christ. Got her hair done, toes, nails. Is that her? Well, it's hard to tell because she's so caked up in all that makeup. It's like she's trying to make up for what she ain't. But she's a saint. So confused because she's been rejected by all these dudes that tell her on a scale of 10 she's a 2. But that ain't true. If she only knew in Christ she is loved, she's secure and accepted. Never be rejected by God who's elected her. Her beauty is her godliness and she ain't got to flaunt it because it's obvious. Identity is found in the God we trust. Any other identity will self-destruct. Identity is found in the God we trust, and any other identity will self-destruct. I'm not the shoes I wear. I'm not the clothes I buy. I'm not the house I live in. I'm not the car I drive. No, I'm not the job I work. You can't define my worth by nothing on God's green earth. My identity is found in Christ, is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the Apostle Paul. I thank you for his word to us today. I thank you for what he learned. Lord, I don't think I could survive what he went through. And Lord, I pray, Father, as I go through pain and suffering and in my own little first world problems here, God, I ask in Jesus' name that I would look to you to be my strength, to be the strength of my life. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would know the character of God, that we would know that you are faithful and sovereign. Lord, I ask God that the gospel would capture our heart and that would be our mission. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we would embrace the life of Jesus, even if that means suffering. Lord, I pray, God, that our desire for you would grow, that we would want to know you more than anything. 
Father, increase our prayer lives. Increase our trust in you. And Lord, I pray that you would redirect our hope and help us to realize that our identity is in you. Our, our citizenship is in you, God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. It's in Christ alone we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.